Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to Polygamer episode number 43 for May 11th, 2016. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. This week on Polygamer, we're speaking with the Engagement Lab at Emerson College located in Boston, Massachusetts. They are an applied research lab for reimagining civic engagement in a digital culture. You may have heard of them at PAX East where they have been on multiple panels, or not just in the Boston area, but elsewhere in the world where they have engaged in projects to promote civic engagement. They also recently appeared on an episode of the TheoNerd podcast, which I myself have been a guest on. Find that show at TheoNerd.com. We'll be speaking with Jordan Pelthorpe, who teaches at Emerson College, as well as Johnny Richardson, who comes to Emerson with the dual role of also working with the nonprofit Able Gamers, as well as previously having worked with Disruptor Beam, creators of Game of Thrones Ascent and Star Trek Timelines. And speaking of wearing multiple hats, in the interest of full disclosure, I should mention that not only am I a graduate of Emerson College, but I'm also on the adjunct faculty there, where I teach in the publishing department. That context has never brought me to professionally collaborate with Jordan and Johnny. Our departments are completely different. However, this episode is essentially an interview with my distant co-workers, so just wanted to get that out there. This interview was recorded on Friday, March 25th, 2016, so almost two months ago. I apologize for the delay in getting it up, but there were a couple of other shows that I wanted to do first, and Jordan and Johnny graciously allowed me to put this one on the back burner for a few weeks while those shows went up first. Show notes for all the groups and resources mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at plyg.me slash 43 for episode number 43, or just go to polygamer.net where you can also sign up for our email newsletter, send voicemail to be played on a future episode of Polygamer, follow me on Twitter at GameBits, where you can suggest future guests for the show, or find our show listed in iTunes, where you're welcome to leave a review. It's been a busy couple of months for me. I went to PAX East 2016, where I moderate a great panel on gaming journalism, and then less than a week later, I went to New York City for Indicate East. I got tons of great contacts at both shows for future guests for not only this show, Polygamer, but my other podcast, IndieCider, where I play indie games and then interview the developer. So stay tuned to both of those shows as we march our way to July and our two-year anniversaries for both shows. Thanks so much to those of you who have been listening from the beginning, and for newcomers, I appreciate your listenership. Enjoy the show. Joining me today are two representatives of the Emerson Engagement Lab at Emerson College in Boston, Massachusetts. Joining me are Mr. Jordan Palethorpe. Hello, Jordan. Hi, Ken. And what is your role with the Engagement Lab? Uh, I am a creative producer at the Engagement Lab. Excellent. Thank you. And also with us today is Mr. Johnny Richardson. Hello, Johnny. Hi there. And what is it you do with the Engagement Lab? I am the lead developer here at the lab. Excellent. So we have a creative producer and a lead developer. Those are some high-powered titles. Thank you for giving me your time. (laughs) Yeah, we try. (laughs) So even though I work at Emerson, I'm on the adjunct faculty, which is how I was originally introduced to Jordan, as well as seeing you speak at PAX East 2015, I haven't had much direct engagement, no pun intended, with the Engagement Lab. Tell our listeners a little bit about what exactly it is. So, yeah, so the Engagement Lab is we're an applied research lab at Emerson College, that uh, attempts to investigate and uh, think about how we can uh, create civic media in a, uh, in a digital culture. We have a lot of different kinds of projects that span many different kinds of uh, work, uh, for anything from traditional research projects uh, to um, teaching uh, and facilitation uh, projects that help uh, 
you know, connect community members to different um, ideas of, uh, of ways to engage in the civic process, all the way to creating games uh, that help to either teach or facilitate civic processes. I think most listeners have some familiarity with the term edutainment. You know, it, it stems decades back to stuff like Oregon Trail to more recent games like The Counting Kingdom. That's not exactly what you're talking about. You're talking more about civic engagement. So what is the distinction between games as an educational tool versus games as a civic engagement tool? Yeah, so it's really interesting because obviously there's a lot of, there is overlap in terms of how we think about a, a traditional learning game and how the games that we create and, and, the diff- and, and how they uh, are similar um, versus how they're, how they're different. Um, there, I think there's a lot of overlap there, but I think really what we try to do uh, is create these things called engagement games, specifically in the game, game design work that we do. We think we create engagement games. And what engagement game is is something that through play, facilitates and engages uh, people in real-world processes, right? So um, there's many examples of this. Uh, We actually just recently launched uh, our new Community Planet game, um, which allows people in Boston to engage in the the policy and planning on on climate change uh, around Boston. And so through playing, you're actually engaging in that political process. So it's not just about learning a certain topic or learning a certain... Uh, you know, trade or anything like that. It's 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 actually through play. You're 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 literally participating in something that's bigger than the game. Usually, when I think about civic engagement, my vocabulary in that world is very limited. I think about getting people to get out and vote, especially during this election year, or getting to donate blood. But it sounds like you're discussing much larger issues than that. For us, it's not about you know necessarily just getting out to vote or you know engaging in kind of the more traditional aspects of the, the, the process of politics that you would imagine. I think it's really about exploring kind of more uh, larger aspects of, of life that have a larger scope than that. So if you imagine taking the, clim- the uh, topic of climate change, you can imagine how complex that is. So what really we're trying to do as a lab is engage people in, in things that they they that they may not think about as often because it's just not covered as much in media and it's not discussed as much on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it just to, to jump off that, I think that you know there's another project that we're, we're doing. It's called the City Accelerator Project um, in which uh, the lab helps facilitate cities to find innovations within their own problem sets, um, which is one of the big things that we do um, across the board in all of our projects which is this kind of co-design process where we are working with partner organizations or um, institutions or community members to help build something or help them build something um, that that not only is something that serves what they want to, to do, but also what we hope to, um, you know, help them achieve that. So it's less about us designing something for somebody else and more about us designing it together. And obviously, digital media and technology plays a large role in that collaboration. But technology, especially digital technology, has become so pervasive. We have iPhones in every pocket. We have laptops, iPads, desktops. Apparently, though, the engagement lab needs to exist to get people to encourage them to focus on the innovative ways that technology can be applied. Why isn't that just normally a part of the everyday workflow and the problem-solving equation that the engagement lab has to come in and say, 
hey, have you guys thought about doing this? That's a really interesting question. I think that the answer to that is that these are really complicated things that, as I kind of touched on earlier. And I think that, I think that as intelligence people are with this ubiquity of technology, I think that a lot of that gets lost in just the day to day just existing because you know, we're all very busy people. Technology has arguably made us more busy. And that takes away time from thinking about these things that are really important, but not necessarily like at the top of your list every day. And I think what the lab is trying to do is we're trying to say, hey, here's some ways that this can be part of your life, but without really like putting it in your face. So we're trying to make it fun. We're trying to make it kind of seamless. And we're trying to make it a more of a highlight for people than some just tasks that they have to check off every day. No, that's absolutely true. I'm, most people, when they pull out their iPhones, they're either thinking about Candy Crush or Snapchat. They're not thinking about climate change. You mentioned that as a specific problem you're trying to solve through civic engagement and digital technology. Can you give us an example of how technology can be used to address such a, no pun intended, global issue? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it's a big question, right? Um, I, I don't know necessarily that we could that technology is going to save the world, right? I, I don't think, and I think that's one of the big things that the lab um, really, really identifies, and 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 the fact that you know Eric Gordon, our director, um, really puts forward to everybody who works with us uh, when we talk about the lab is that you know technology is a tool that we can use to help solve some of these problems and these issues that we come up against. But it's not just a catch-all thing that we can just make a technology tool to fix everything, right? Um, which is why the lab has, uh, you know, we, we've, we've kind of pivoted because originally, you know, the lab started as Eric Gordon's, um, Eric Gordon's way to, to, to do research around how games integrate into civic processes. From there, we've moved more towards a broader approach where how can we use uh, how can we use all the tools available to us um, to make uh, impact and progress in the specific issues or the specific problems that we want to address or work with with partners? So I guess in a specific example, um, there is, a, a, you know, the, the, there, we're doing a game called Hand Washing with the Nance, um, and it's a, a game that it's a storybook driven game that is played by children ages uh, eight to 12 in Ghana, uh, during their school curriculum. And it teaches them through uh, a, a cultural narrative about how and why to wash your hands properly. And it's kind of funny because, you know, to create a narrative around how to teach kids how to wash their hands, um, it doesn't sound super exciting, but we had to figure out how to make it exciting. And you know, a lot of that work came down to thinking about how children engage with each other in Ghana specifically, not just children in general. Um, and it turned out to be a really interesting project because there's no real technology with it. It's it's more analog, but it's still effectively sol helping solve the problem, um, which is, again, just getting that knowledge out about how to hand wash and why to hand wash. I guess that's more of an example of how we necessarily didn't use technology to to solve this this issue but it's again part of our approach um, which is to not rely on technology but use technology when it's appropriate well i think that's a great example how you solved it with analog approaches because even in this country getting public education 
to fund technology can be challenging. Getting every student to be issued an iPad, for example, is something that happens in some schools, but I would presume not most of them. And that's probably even more the case in other parts of the world. I, I would imagine that, for example, outfitting certain schools in parts of Africa would be very challenging when they have other issues that they're struggling with. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's definitely a lot, but I think there's a lot more presence um, it, for, of technology in, in places than I think most of us assume. But that being said, uh, there definitely is still ac access problems. And there's definitely still a lot of things that come into play when you're kind of, when you're, when you're thinking about creating um, any kind of intervention, uh, you know, when it comes to access. So yeah, I think there's, there's still a lot of, uh, you know, gaps in that. Uh, and which and which is why I think, you know, not just about access, but just about correct presence um, for the uh, for that project. You mentioned Ghana and you're also working in Boston. And I saw on the website also Detroit and Philadelphia. And it's very important that you work in collaboration with these groups to design something together as opposed to designing it for them, as you said. Who initiates that relationship? Do you identify communities that could benefit from interaction with the Engagement Lab, or do they come to you based on your reputation and ask for your help? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the relationship building happens through our principal investigators, which is our, uh, you know, executive director, Eric Gordon, and our associate director, Paul Mihildaitis, as well as uh, Catherine D'Ignazio. And so I think a lot of that relationship building happens on that end with them, um, whether it's them talking to organizations, them having ideas for their own projects that organizations might partner with, to responding to RFPs. I mean, it's just a very large combination. But regardless of how we get projects, I think what's most important is what projects we're working on and what projects we take on, because we definitely we care about that kind of stuff. We, we don't want to just do anything because we have a very specific idea of what engages and helps uh, with the work that we're doing, you know, because we are also, uh, we're, like I said, we're an applied research lab. We're not just a game studio. I mean, uh, we definitely take, have development, at, uh, you know, at the core of our, of our, um, our mission and, and technology and, and engaging in a digital culture at the core of our mission, but we're still a research lab and we still care about how we can better that engagement through, um, uh, the more traditional uh, ways we think about research and the more uh, traditional ways we think about implementation of, of design and projects. So what are the criteria you use by which to evaluate potential collaborations? You've mentioned hand-washing and global warming, which one is exists on a very small scale, the other is a very big scale. So how what is the criteria that ties that together? So I don't, it's interesting that you say hand-washing would be on a small scale, right? Because... Uh, you know, I, I think that there is, well, I guess this makes sense because hand washing, uh, the, the project hand washing with Anansi, uh came through UNICEF um, and, uh, and with a combination of a lot of other organizations, including the Red Cross um, and Right to Play. Uh, but, you know, the hand washing element is something that is core to the spreading of diseases. Um, and so, the even though our, our mission in that game is a very kind of small, like, can we help children learn how to hand wash properly and have them do it more often? Um, it seems like a very small thing, but it actually links to these much greater elements of um, 
of global uh, global health. Yeah, I think, I mean, it definitely just depends. The way we take projects, again, just depends on, you know, the principal investigator, uh, whether they find a, a unique element or feel that it's important for our work or important for the lab or something that can make a difference. But it's very, very specific depending on the project. Obviously, there are also logistical concerns with it too, uh, whether we take projects on or not. We would like to do every project that we feel would be amazing, but... Unfortunately, we, we do live in a, a world where money exists. So, And how many people work in the engagement lab? Um, it's between 15 and 20 right now. Uh, we, we do have some, we have some contractors, um, but, you know, we have a, we, we have a core team. We have a couple of developers. We have um, an art team. Uh, we have a producer project management team. Um, and then we also, you know, have a lot of space for, for students at Emerson, which is one of the bigger, you know, one of the bigger missions that we have, which is engaging students in this kind of work uh, and giving them opportunities to understand and learn about this work. You mentioned several of the international and global relationships that you collaborate in as part of the engagement lab. You also have domestic relationships. I presume the international relationships have some not only unique challenges, again, as we mentioned, but also some unique benefits to an exchange of culture, ideas, and perspectives. Can you tell us a little bit more about the benefits of those international relationships? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one, of the big, one of the bigger projects that I've been working on for the past couple of years um, is a, a collaboration between us and UNDP Egypt, uh, specifically in Cairo. And uh, we have hosted, we've been working with them to uh, host a series of workshops and uh, on around game design and uh, game design, specifically game design for social change. It's just been really fascinating to work with them because it's, it's not just working with an organization, but it's working with people who are making these games to make a difference in their culture and in their environment. Because, and so, and so you get that, you get that you get that feedback through what's happening there and what's important there and how people are trying to help address things there. Uh, for example, there's a, there's a game, a game changer fellow, which is one of the, one of the things we call our new program, the game changer fellowship this year. And, uh, and his name is ATEF. And he's making this really amazing game about helping kids learn how to communicate with each other through sign language. Right. And so through him doing this game and through help him coming to our workshop and like, you know, being a fellow, I've learned that in Egypt, it's ostracized uh, for, for kids who are, uh, kids who are, are deaf, uh, who use sign language, are usually very ostracized in their public schooling uh, situations. Um, and it's just really fascinating to, 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 to learn a little bit more about that. But more importantly, I think, is to see somebody who is, you know, see, seeing a problem and saying, oh, I actually want to try to solve this through making a game. And hey, if I can teach some kids how to communicate with each other or at least uh, create a less stigmatized environment for these kids, then I've succeeded. And so I think through building our relationships and through our projects, we do learn in a very kind of natural way about different elements that are happening in the international community, um, not just from, you know, on a larger, broader scale, but sometimes from a very personal scale, which I think is also really important. You mentioned the UNDP. That's the United Nations Development Program? Correct. Okay. And obviously they have a presence in Egypt. I can understand how, for example, the city of Boston or the state of Massachusetts might approach the engagement lab. How does a relationship between a college in Boston and a United Nations program in Egypt develop? 
Yeah, I think it goes back to our um, the other uh, comment about how we develop all of our relationships, which is through our principal investigators. I'm actually not 100% sure how the actual um, relationship established to begin with, but I know that the first way that we actually approached and worked with them was through going, traveling to Cairo and putting on a three-day uh, game design for social change workshop where, you know, hundreds of hundreds of Egyptians came to this trying to learn about how games can be used in, in this kind of space. A lot of the relationships we build are through just finding mutual understanding of how we feel about the topics at hand and how we can work together to make a difference. Wow. I had no idea that you had had this three-day workshop in Cairo. That's really impressive. Yeah, it was really, yeah, a lot of our, actually a lot of our work, um, you know, especially with that pro that program um, has been a back and forth, which is really interesting because we did the first workshop in Cairo and then we had fellows come to Boston and do a workshop, a week long workshop. And then we kind of, we went back again in, in the following August to do a kind of another like inception workshop where we invited the public to participate in this workshop. And then again, we brought another five fellows back. And the goal for that project specifically is to train those fellows in how they not only create games, but also become experts in teaching game design so that it can be something that perpetuates naturally in their own communities and not us coming in as an outsider being like, oh yeah, we teach you game design uh, and you can only do it with, uh, with us. We want to empower people to take initiative and become experts through giving, up, giving them the knowledge that we have. This might be a tangent, but are you familiar with the program Seed Global Health by Vanessa Carey? I'm actually not, no. no. It's founded by John Carey's daughter, who is herself a doctor, and her philosophy is that rather than sending doctors to Africa, which is a short-term solution, they send doctors to Africa to train doctors so that when they leave, there is still a presence left behind. Mm. And that sounds very similar to what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, we call it the train the trainers, right? That's kind of what we, what, we, what we try to do in a lot of our work, um, not just the Egypt program. But yeah, it's, it's, about, it's about creating sustainability, right? Like there's nothing better than being able to empower people to do the work that, you, that they want to do. And so by us coming in as an outsider and by doing things, even something is, something is you know, somewhat simple as teaching game design, we want to be able to teach other people how to teach game design, you know, again, so it could create that sustainability model, which is really important to our work. And if I recall, the collaboration with Egypt's UNDP culminated in an exhibit right at Emerson College, which I attended, I think, last spring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. So when, uh, yeah, we, we, we had a uh, event where the, the fellows would, would actually show off their games um, to the public. Uh, and so that's, that's, the, that's the event I think you're talking about. And yeah, it went really well. And I think what's really cool about that is they you know, they actually get to engage with people with their work directly one-on-one rather than having us kind of be a facilitator for that. And I think that direct connection to people is the most important. Now, obviously, there is some development that occurs not only in Egypt, but also at the engagement lab. And one of the developers you have is on this call, Johnny. Can you tell me a little bit about like what sort of development occurs at the engagement lab and what sort of resources you have available to devote to those projects? You're creating these games and these tools with these other organizations. But like if I walked in there, would it be very much like an indie studio that I would find uh, throughout Boston? Um, yes and no. So my background is in uh, startups. So I worked in 
technology and game startups for a number of years, and I can tell you that the Engagement Lab, from a development standpoint, definitely kind of uh, matches that of a that of a tech startup in many ways. But we're also different in the sense that uh, you know we're entirely grant funded and we're project based. So as where you know an indie studio or a startup might have like one major product, two major projects that they work on. We have dozens of different things all at once. So really what our job as developers here is we have a lot of different technologies that we use. Um, a lot of them are based on the type of goal that we're trying to achieve. And then we also have, you know, we kind of have an interesting process here because we, like I mentioned, we constantly have to juggle priorities and, and deadlines and different things like that. So we actually match. We're kind of a we're kind of a hybrid of a game startup meets a meets a marketing agency in the sense that an agency has lots of projects at once, and your day can be divvied up in different ways to address all of those projects. Um, and that really keeps things here very fresh and new. And you're really having to. Um, at least I, I can speak for myself and another developer every day. We're really having to stretch our knowledge base and figure out new ways to develop, um, efficiently and effectively to, to achieve our goals. So Johnny, you've worked at some game studios like Disruptor Beam, which has worked on some very high profile licensed titles like Game of Thrones and Star Trek. That is a very different end goal, I imagine, from what you're working on now. And also, and Game of Thrones being a social game that exists mobile and Facebook, that again might also be different. Uh, what are some of the similarities between like what people might traditionally think of as a game that you've worked on and what's happening at the Engagement Lab? So I think that the, that I can tell you from a technology standpoint, there's a lot in common because really when you look at building a large game like Game of Thrones Ascent, Although that game was much, much bigger than anything that we really have the capacity to work on here at the lab, the processes and the techniques and the development practice, uh, the development best practices are very much one and the same. And that's because despite the fact that we have a different goal in mind, I want the products that we create to be of the highest caliber that they can possibly be, uh, which is very much the same at a company like Disruptor Beam. Uh, qualitatively, I want to produce things that not only the lab is proud of, but our partners and, you know, the organizations that we work with are proud of as well. So on that aspect, things are very much the same. However, uh, you're definitely right that, um, you know, the goal is different, which is that we're not trying to be a giant profitable game company. We're trying, we have a goal of, of civic engagement. So always in the back of my head, I'm thinking to myself, if I if I have this goal in mind, what could I be doing better, even on the level of you know writing my code, or when I'm building code for somebody else, I'm always thinking to myself, what could I be doing better? Where when somebody else download downloads this code, because all of our stuff for the most part is open source, I always think to myself. How can I empower other developers to use this code in ways that would be effective for them as well? That's really interesting. And you don't put any restrictions on how that code could be used? For the most part, no. We do have a, a few projects that are 
you know, considered proprietary just because of the the type of goal that we're achieving or who, you know, the type of organization that we work with. But for the most part, you can go to our GitHub page and down and look at all of our work. Uh, use any of the code that you want. Uh, run the application um, on your own servers, except things like that. Um, and yeah, we don't put any restrictions on that. And it's really been a mission for me since being here uh, for now about a year is I definitely tried to step up our game as far as documenting what we do here uh, on the on the technology side and making it more attractive for developers to share our code. I just want to give you a personal thanks for documenting your code. So few people do that, and it is so valuable. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Do- people that don't document their code are a nightmare. <laughs> no argument here. You mentioned that you're not trying to necessarily be a big profitable game studio. You're, you're trying to promote civic engagement. And it's interesting that those were proposed as two different things because I think it would be great if they were the same thing. I think it would be great if more of these AAA studios exhibited some degree of social responsibility and put out games that you know encouraged empathy, for example. It, it would be nice to know that that is not the exclusive domain of a research lab or a nonprofit. Well, I do think that in the gaming community at large, if you go to if you go to you know things like PAX, you do see a lot of empathy and community and understanding and uh, and I think that really comes out of the, the players themselves. I think that, that one of the one of the miracles of video games is the the ability to empower people to express ideas and learn new things and so I definitely don't think that civic engagement is necessarily just our domain as a nonprofit. I think that good, really good games and really good developers kind of just by osmosis create that in and of itself just as a result of having a good game and a good community. So I definitely, you know, I support the idea that, you know, we're all in this together. The more... The more that we do our job, the more it benefits the poor profit industry. The more that they do their job, the more it benefits us. Because that just exposes more people to the games that everybody plays, and it makes that you know our goals easier to achieve. Very well said. Now, I'm not done talking about the engagement lab, but on the topic of working with these major studios and also access to resources, as we discussed earlier, you are also, Johnny, the director of industry outreach for Able Gamers. Is that correct? Yes. Fantastic. So Able Gamers is very similar to the UK group that was featured on this podcast a few weeks ago called Special Effect, where uh, Special Effect works directly with consumers to make games more accessible to them by, for example, providing them with specialty hardware. Able Gamers, a USA-based group, does very similar work, but they also especially in your role, work with the, the developers themselves to make sure that accessibility is baked in from the start. Is that right? That's exactly right. Uh, Able Gamers for the last 10 years has really gone above and beyond, I think, as far as reaching out to the development uh, side of things. That's mostly as a result of our, our director, Mark Barley, and our, uh, and, and our incredible staff at Able Gamers. Um, I will say that I'm kind of more of a consultant, so what will happen is a developer will say, hey, we have a question about that, and I get I get a, a little message in my inbox. But there's there's a core staff on the Able Gamers that is constantly um, at events and conferences, and they're, they're really out there getting developers aware of this idea. 
So yeah, that's definitely a core mission of AWAMers, along with what you just mentioned, uh, providing hardware. We, you know, we even provide, uh, you know, grants for disabled gamers to obtain the things that they need to enjoy games. Um, but we also see it from the other side where that's all well and good, but games also need to be made accessible, and that's one and the same. Now, I don't have much experience directly with the accessibility aspects of games, but from having attended Able Gamers sessions at PAX East, what I've gleaned is that accessibility shouldn't be that hard as long as the developer is thinking about it. It means including colorblind modes, for example, or controller remapping and captions for spoken dialogue. Is it really that simple that we just need to get people thinking about it so that they can do it? Or is accessibility really a complex issue with a lot of technical hurdles? I mean, both of those things are true. So <laughs> the, the way that we approach it with AO gamers, and we actually have a guide called Includification that goes over this in detail. But the way that we tend to talk about accessibility in games is we follow a good, better, best model. So the way to look at it is a gradient of features. So not every game needs or should have all of the full accessibility features that you could possibly imagine. That just doesn't really make sense from a gameplay standpoint, sometimes from a budget standpoint, you know, but there are definitely very simple things that you can do from the very beginning that, that take it to the next level. Uh, you know, we're starting to see a lot of developers where things like colorblind mode and closed caption are just part of every game that gets shipped now. I think that that's a result of increasing awareness of the types of players that are out there. Not every player is fully sighted or has, uh, you know, full hearing faculties. So I definitely think that it is, there's no question that it's a complex problem because, like, there are conferences about these topics that not even just in games, but accessibility in general is a massively complicated topic that has ha, has touch points in everything from government to academia to daily life. But yeah, there's no question that developers that achieve good accessibility are the types that tend to think about these things from the start. And really, so for us, it's about awareness. And if you look at where, you know, if you gone to GDC about 10 years ago like I did and you ask people about accessibility, everybody thinks you're crazy. They've never heard of this. And now it's gone from I don't know what you're talking about to, yeah, please tell me everything I, I need to know. And it's interesting that you bring this up because the Boston Festival of Indie Games this year has a category of games that I will be directing where we will be looking at criteria related to accessibility. So we're actually looking for developers to submit games that have these things in them and we'll actually be judging them on the basis of how well does this A, represent being disabled, or B, how well does it empower a disabled player to enjoy the game. Wow, that is excellent. I had no idea that was going on. I previously interviewed Boston Fig's co-founder, Fiona Sherbach, on this podcast. 
I will include a link to that in the show notes as well as links to the Engagement Labs GitHub, the Includification Guide, and also the Boston Fig website in case people want to either submit a game for your consideration, Johnny, or if they just want to attend the event and learn more about it. Awesome. Thank you. So you have been associated with the Engagement Lab, I believe, for about a year now and with Able Gamers for about four years now. How do those two roles that you simultaneously cohabit interact with each other? What sort of opportunities arise from you being associated with both of these organizations, if any? So for me, uh, what I always, as a developer, as the guy that's in the room that's deciding how something is going to get made or one of the people deciding, um, I am always harping on, is this an accessible thing? So Currently, we're actually building a lot of games that are web-based, so I really uh, strive to be uh, to always think about how can we make this website as accessible as humanly possible. Even if the budget is small, there are always things that we can do that that help with that. And I've actually seen you know a number of projects where. Uh, you know, we didn't think about that until it was too late, and then suddenly you're trying to scramble, and, and you've got a, a user who's blind, and you find out that they're having difficulty. So what I've tried to do over the last 12 months is really put that at the start of the process. Think about what what is the audience for this, and how do we address these possibilities? And the other part of that, I think the games that we make here at the lab just inherently have to be more accessible than, say, your average commercial product. And that's because we're about, we're about engaging every single possible constituency. So, and that, that's, that's, that's blind to every possible disability. So you never know what's going to be a part of your audience. And whereas you could say a thing like Call of Duty is never going to have a lot of fully blind players because that game is going to be very difficult to play if you're blind, no matter what the developer does. We actually have users that are blind, but they have to be part of the constituency. Otherwise, the process isn't going to work. And... For Able Gamers, I think what's great for me is I can bring my knowledge as a developer to that organization and say, okay, we talk a lot about the why of this topic, but when somebody wants to know how, I can be the person that they go to. What's been great to see is that the staff at Able Gamers has, has learned so much about that, that actually a lot of that's been distilled through the whole organization. So uh, I think that's, I think that's uh, a really important thing. Excellent. Very cool. So I want to talk a little bit more about the Engagement Lab in the context of Emerson College. Uh, Jordan, you and I have both taught at Emerson. Johnny, you are a graduate of Emerson. So we all have a horse in this race. Uh, But as far as I know, like Emerson is primarily a communication school. And certainly video games are a form of communication. But Emerson tends to focus on uh, publishing and especially verbal communication and the performance arts like theater and so i'm wondering how does a school that doesn't offer computer science for example how does the engagement lab fit into that environment it's a really interesting question i i think um you know there's a lot of like i said before there's a lot of projects that we do that aren't specifically about um you know creating a you know mobile app or creating a web app or creating a game um, there's a lot of different things we do that are more about data, data-driven uh, 
uh, projects or projects that are even art-driven. One of our principal investigators here, Catherine D'Ignazio, who is an assistant professor at Emerson um, in the journalism department, she, me and her worked on a couple of projects together, um, one more recently that um, will be being published very soon um, on a larger capacity is something called Boston Coastline Future Past. And what Boston Coastline Future Past is, is was it was an event that happened in June that was a walking data visual, visualization uh, where 30 participants basically traced a route um, from the climate change prediction of the city's coastline to its history. Um, and it was a way to physically understand the future and the past of the city changing at scales that are pretty difficult to see um, uh, and comprehend. So I, I think like that's just one example of, of a project that we've worked on that engages the community um, in ways that still apply with our mission, but is more performance-based. It's more art-based. Um, and we have quite a few projects like that. Um, so we are, we, are, we are always, you know, also trying to engage the, uh, with again, with our work that, that, that aligns not only just from like a technical technology perspective, but also from a way to, you know, bring all the elements of engagement back into into our process. And just to just to kind of dovetail on what Jordan said, you know, although Emerson does not have, as you said correctly, a computer science degree, it does have uh, something called interactive media, which is the degree that I received when I graduated. And what that degree is about is it's not just about writing code, but it's about how do we approach writing code and creating software in the context of communication and art. And what that's allowed me to do in my career is I've definitely had a broader base to work from. So when I when I work with a team, I can talk code primarily, but I can also walk the walk of design, writing, project management, and that's that's what I got from the the, the interactive media program at Emerson. And we actually do have a few students at the lab that work here that are writing code and they are developing software on their own. And what's been great for me to watch as an as alumni is coming back and actually helping these students that have the thirst to learn how to code. And although we're not a code-heavy school, we're able to really augment that degree that I mentioned in a way to really focus their efforts on learning more about that. So we definitely um, have a diverse array of students that work here that have all manner of talents. And the lab enables really almost any possible talent to be part of the process. And I can't think of another department at the college that has that ability just because of how many different things we're doing here. Yeah, and I mean, just to, to say, well, another thing about that, um, you know, like you like you mentioned, we 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 both teach at Emerson, uh, Ken, me, and you. And um, one of the things that I I did when I was teaching a uh, research writing course was make the research writing course uh, integrate with game design. And what that did was is it opened up a student's perspective, especially a first year student's perspective that writing and research doesn't necessarily have to be about creating, you know, the seven page essay, right? It can be about partnering with an organization such as the class I last taught to create a game that engages people on a topic of interest or on a topic of social change, 
by doing the research and by doing the implementation of that research, which is, you know, why we consider our place applied research. Um, and so, and so I think all these things are linked together in terms of our approach to, you know, not only uh, civic engagement and partnerships with larger organizations and the, and the, the national and the international community, but also, you know, um, empowering uh, our students here to see that there's the ability to create this kind of thing and to work in this kind of space, even if you're not necessarily the, the prototypical person that you would consider um, would be. And so, as Johnny said, you know, we, we really empower people from different, all different kinds of um, specialties and, um, you know, uh, different skill sets to, to, to work here and work with us. And, and it's been successful in that way. Yeah, I can totally see how this has been part of the sea change in the approach to game design the last 10, 15 years. When I started college, there was just a computer science program. And now, 15 years later, that same college, WPI, offers bachelor's and master's in interactive media and game design because they recognize that this is an interdisciplinary medium. Exactly. And it sounds like Emerson is uh, going that way as well. Well, yeah, or at least that's what we're trying to, to push, right? That's part of our mission. Um, you know, which is why, you know, we recently are just launching the civic media and practice, uh, graduate program, which hopefully gains uh, a lot of people from a lot of different career paths, um, in thinking about how we can, you know, uh, or, or empowering them to, uh, you know, um, uh, enter into this field, even if you are from, you know, even if you're, if you're a community activist or you are a, you know, um, computer science software developer, um, we want to bring that kind of diversity back into this uh, this work. Yeah, so you did just mention the CMAP graduate program, which is, do you have students enrolled in that or is it too new? So the CMAP program will be officially starting in September and we're actually still accepting applications until May 15th. So that's what I can say about that. So yeah, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in CMAP, definitely check it out. Excellent. Again, there will be a link in the show notes to the Civic Media and Art Practice Program at Emerson for your Master's of Arts in CMAP. Very cool. I have one more question. So when I first started teaching at Emerson three years ago, I was in Walker 418, and there was an Xbox 360 and a PlayStation 3 in that classroom. Was that your doing? Uh, that's, that's my fault. Um, <laughs> so, I actually ran a club at Emerson from 2006 to 2009 that was called the Emerson College Game Developers Association. Uh, what's interesting is that's recently been rebooted, but, um, that was our doing. We actually were able to get the college to purchase some consoles, uh, and, uh, we definitely, uh, you know, utilize them to an extent, um, but uh, I encourage people to wipe the dust off of those and then do some fun stuff with them because I think that they're a little bit underutilized at the moment. Yeah, actually, just to, to jump off of Johnny just said about the game development club, um, you know, last spring, um, or, or I'm sorry, uh, this past winter, we, uh, uh, people at the lab, we, we put on an event um, called Girls Make Games. And what we did with that was we tried, we invited, um, a bunch of young women from Emerson um, and participating uh, colleges and community communities to come here on a full one-day workshop with um, women in leadership positions in the games industry for to to get you know uh, these women interested in games and game making and to make it accessible. And the fascinating thing that came from that 
was two of the two of the the students that attended um, that workshop then rebooted the the game development club that was kind of based on both Johnny's old uh, program that he that uh, the club that he had at Emerson uh, combined with the the informal class I did last spring, which was just a, a, a uh, you know kind of more of a play games and talk about them kind of thing. But the best part about this is that these two women are now the leaders of this club and they are have driven this club and it's totally accessible to both men and women, but it is predem- uh, predominantly women because of the first event. And so I think that's just a really, really interesting thing um, when we talk about diversity and we talk about you know people making games and people uh, feeling that they can make games um, to empower those kind of people to start that process, be inclusive but have them as the leadership positions. Yeah, that's awesome. Groups like Girls Make Games are amazing, and also Code Liberation Foundation, which is going to be on an upcoming episode of Polygamer. They're just doing great work to open up development and make it more accessible. I mean, Johnny talked about making games more accessible to gamers. We also need to make game development more accessible to developers, and it takes you need to have uh, you need to work on both fronts to get everybody working together. Yeah, that's what I was going to just chime in and say is that one thing leads to the other. If you have more diversity within the industry itself, uh, by proxy, you're going to have more accessibility in the games because once you have more perspectives and more ideas and more backgrounds and cultures, inherently you're going to end up with a final product that is that matches that diversity. So I think that things like Girls Make Games women in games are really, 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 really important to that goal, and uh, it's going to be better for everybody. Excellent, and I appreciate the work that the Engagement Lab and Able Gamers are doing towards that end. I think what's what's just really important is to understand that, you know, as we spoke up about this, that everybody's kind of in this together, and that to find solutions to problems that we that exist in our communities, our national communities, our international communities, the only way to do that is to work together and to figure out ways to, um, you know, work through uh, those those boundaries that are created. And so I think that, you know, a lot of this work that we do would not be possible without the people that we work with and the people that participate with us. So I just think that's really important to, to mention, um, not only for us, but to anybody who's interested in this kind of work. It is true. It does take a village. It's a village. So remind our listeners where we can find the Engagement Lab online. Uh, you can find us at elab.emerson.edu. And if anybody wants to follow either of you specifically, such as on Twitter or on your websites, can they do that? Absolutely. You can find us, all of our contact information, actually in the people section on the eLab site. Very good. Again, there will be a link in the show notes. Jordan and Johnny, thank you so much for your time. Our pleasure. Thank you, Ken. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Sorry, I kind of I kind of bumbled some of those questions in the beginning, but hopefully you can use some of that. <laughs> yeah, so I do all my editing in Audacity, and they have a smart filter, which makes us both sound wicked smart. Really? Oh wow! That's- yeah, it saved my bacon so many times. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, just like click the button, right? That's it. That's all it takes.